0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: At a certain point, we were actually about to run out of money and and Michael and I were like fighting every day and he's like, well, let's go back to L.A. and I'm like, no, I came to Europe to travel and play music and make a career. I'm going to find a way to do it. Well, you know what I had to do? I had to teach myself how to book a tour. I'd never done it before. (laughs) And I literally, I, you know, I got a music magazine. This is in Holland. And I saw saw these clubs. And this was before, you know, emails and internet really. I had to pick up the phone and call all these clubs, spend Eight hours a day calling, calling, calling. Hello, we're Bright Blue Gorilla from Los Angeles. We want to play your club. You know, do you speak English? (laughs) And uh, sending out all these cassette tapes. And sometimes it took like 10 phone calls or the person is only in on Tuesdays at noon. You know, it was was hard. But I finally got through. And by fall, we had 50 shows booked.
2: Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more by joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com/tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com/tribe. Michael and Robin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks for thanks, having Joanna. us. Absolutely. So I found out about you guys uh, and uh, your company, Bright Blue Gorilla, when you guys wrote in. And when I saw what you did, I thought, wow, this is weird and it's cool, which meant kind of a no-brainer for me as (laughs) having you as guests. Uh, But before we get into your work, uh, I want to start asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've both made throughout your lives and careers?
1: Ah, interesting question. Well, my dad was a salesman. And um, his grandfather, who came over from Europe in the twenties, uh, he started a business in New York, and it was like stainless steel giant kettles that you cook bagels in, or a certain kind of metal that they used on ships. So my dad came out to California with my mom in the fifties, and it was it was great because they were the first of the family to travel and get out of New York and leave the tradition. So my dad. And mom really had a a pioneer spirit of coming to a new place and setting up their lives here in Los Angeles. And I think that really influenced me that it's okay to go to new places and reinvent yourself. And plus, my dad being a salesman was a real people person. He's always been really good with people, very friendly, not afraid to talk to someone he doesn't know. And uh, that came in handy when I started booking our concert and film tours, because you have to talk to a lot of people. And you have to be persistent because you get a lot of no's along the way. So I think I I picked that up from my Mm -hmm. dad and my mom. um, Mostly a homemaker, but she was also into market research for a little while. And an artist. And and, oh yeah, she's actually a pretty good painter. So I think that influenced me. Plus, she always liked to wear bright colors.
3: Yeah, that's right. Also, they're very open-minded too. That that was the thing. You know, they when they when her parents came to California, they they went native. You know, right. as opposed to New York, and they really got into like the yogurt and the and the the self help things and the therapy, encounter groups, and all this stuff. It's yeah, that's funny. true. Yeah, so they really it really did help broaden their horizon.
1: What about you, Michael?
3: What about oh, I thought you're so your, you're your interviewing parents. now. Robin's interviewing now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm if we took over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I was gonna. You know, I don't know if I should say my father was a hitman for the mob, but. I guess I'll, I already said it, so no, I'm totally kidding. He was a psychiatrist. Well, same thing. <laughs> his same thing, basically.
2: Yeah, I was about to say that that's kind of the equivalent. Yeah, there's not much difference between the two.
3: Yeah, yeah. So he he was that he he did that, and he 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 hated it all his life. He hated his job, uh, listening to people's problems all day long, and so he he became a later in life when he retired. He lived to be eight, 98, and from about I guess about age. 55 or so. I think he retired a little early. He started being a craftsman and he learned how to build wood cabinetry and adobe uh, walls and buildings and do stucco work. And he lived in New Mexico and became basically like a sort of a self-made rancher farmer guy. (laughs) And he loved it. He really reinvented himself. And he was extremely happy with that new lifestyle the last half of his life, which is that's pretty neat. So and my mother was an artist, mm-hmm. and my mother was probably the bigger influence. She was a completely out of the box person, really a free thinker um great storyteller uh, Some of my siblings, brothers and sisters questioned the uh, veracity of her tales, you know <laughs> whether she was she'd making stuff up, but i didn't care because it was just great. her stories were great, so and she was extremely uh, positive in one way that really affected me that early on it was said like a mantra to me you can do anything you want if you just figure it out you know that that was it it's like I, any problem i'd have she said you can do it just figure it out and i would figure it out and and uh that was really helpful and i think be i guess i think the most of the friends we have that have trouble in their lives often had really negative things from their parents early like who do you think you are or, you can't do that or this or that Mine was exactly the opposite, so I think that I think that's very was very significant for me.
1: And her love of politics influenced. But yeah, she's you.
3: a po- yeah, she was a politician in the near the end of her life too. She she was a elected official for two terms in New Mexico. So she, uh, yeah, I was always interested in politics. And around our house, pretty neat place. Around our house, I lived with my mother. She she had well, because your parents got divorced. Yeah, they got divorced. She had uh, you know governors and lawyers and top journalists and a a cavalcade of political people coming through all the time for dinners and drinks and this and that. So it was quite an interesting And even European exchange students, right? right? That's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, there was one significant moment. She was, my mother was very, as I said, a free thinker. So she would invite people to stay that she thought was interesting. And at one point we had this hippie caravan come through when I was, I think it was about seven or eight years old yeah and these hippies came literally they pull up in a bus in front of our house a school bus and they lived with us for like a week and i was asking them questions well what do you guys do to, for your job and they're like oh man we just do whatever we feel like you know i make jewelry sometimes or sometimes so and so will you know will will whatever and i was like you know you and we just travel and we do whatever we love you know that to, was a sunk I was in. Like, I was like, you can do that? That's a that's a job option, you know. It was pretty funny. And uh yeah, so yeah. that was that was my background.
1: <laughs> that must have influenced wow. the BW van we so, bought years later. Uh, yeah,
3: for sure. <laughs> well,
2: so Robin, you mentioned this sort of pioneering spirit that seems to have remained, you know, present in your adult life. And I and I feel like kids have that sort of almost inherently. And then, you know, they get socialized, you know, parents, peers, school, society, whatever, and they start to lose that. Uh, One, why do you think that happens? And two, how do you get it back?
1: That's a great question. I mean, so much of our schooling does not encourage people to think for themselves or to think outside of the box. I mean, I, I definitely had some great teachers along the way, but I think, our schooling system especially in America is really to turn you into a good worker bee. That's that's they don't really give you life skills. I think there needs to be more spirituality in schools and um you know, more thinking outside of the box. But I do think yeah, kids definitely have the pioneer spirit and they have imagination and
3: depends on the kid
1: depends on the kid yeah we all we all come in you uh, come
3: in with pre you know you're pre i mean we 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 were yogis and so reincarnation is kind of a a precondition to our thinking so it's like you come in with stuff that you that you brought and so that's why kids are so different in the same family
1: yeah that's really true but my parents have always been really supportive of me as an artist as a musician And they, you know, supported me, um, my biggest fans, and they came to all my shows in the early days when I used to play the clubs in Los Angeles. They encouraged me, you know, to learn piano and guitar. And I took voice lessons for many years. That makes a big difference. I think when parents encourage a children that are dreaming of things, you know, I mean, later, you know, it was like, well, how are you going to make money? You need something to fall back on. They, my parents definitely got into that, too. But they really mm-hmm. supported my choices in my life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They and did. That, make, that makes a big
3: difference. Up to this time. To this day.
1: So. Yeah, to this day. And they, they know we're, we're outside of the box. Or like you started by saying, we're a little weird. That's why you were drawn to us.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why true. should you do the same thing everybody else is doing? Right. Uh, As far as getting things back, like every choice you make, you know, leads to something. And here's the thing for anybody that feels like they're stuck. They put themselves in a corner. You put yourself there so you can get yourself out of there. And that's really important to remember. You have by little choices. It's like you don't have to do anything totally dramatic necessarily. But if you start making small choices that guide you to where you want to go, you will get there. You, You can change. Because you put yourself where you are, that's the people forget that they forget that it's self-created everything even though it seems like oh they're doing this person's doing it to me. I would say no, again, yoga philosophy. If it's not in you already, it it can't resonate with you. it can't affect you. If you don't have that seed of the same problem you're complaining about coming from someone else that they're pointing it at you, if you don't don't have that same essence in you, then you wouldn't get it. So if you look within, start to work to change yourself the way that you want to be. It takes time. But if you start, you will do it. You can change.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm.
2: hmm. Robin, I want to go back to the the thing you said about, you know, your parents being encouraging while simultaneously also bringing up the conversation, of, OK, how are you planning to make a living? Because, uh, you know, and, and I've, I've mentioned this briefly on the show before, so I won't go into too much detail. But my dad talked me out of being a music major, and I'm glad he did because I played the tuba. And, you know, you're literally <laughs> waiting for somebody to die for a job to open up. <laughs> um, and I don't regret that he did that. And, uh, you know, I think that to me, I think when parents talk to their children, I I even remember writing an article about this that actually pissed off some of my readers. Uh, And, you know, I said that in a lot of ways, you know, parents aren't wrong when they discourage their children from, you know, choosing to pursue careers in the arts, especially if they don't paint the reality of what they're getting themselves into. So I wonder what that side of the conversation was like for you, Robin.
1: Yeah. Well that's interesting. I mean, you definitely have to feed yourself. <laughs> you know, you have you have to make a living with your art if you don't want to just do your art as a hobby.
3: But what does so, that mean, make a living? What's what is, the, well, that's,
1: that's, that's the that you know, Michael, that's really the point. What does it mean make a living? And that's one thing I think it took my mom and dad a while to understand that I didn't want the same things as they wanted. You know, in, in their generation, it's like well, you know, you get a house, you get a car, you have a family, A plus B plus C plus D. You know, there's there's a certain route to take, kind of what everybody else was doing. So for me, like my mom, I remember one time my mom actually visited me in Ghent, Belgium. Oh yeah. You know, mo- most of the years, Michael and I, um, we haven't necessarily rented places for long terms, our lives are project-based. Because we've been
3: touring musicians. Yeah, you know, touring
1: musicians, time. or we want to shoot a movie in Australia. Let's go there for a couple months. Uh, let's go to Berlin for a couple months. We we do move around a lot. But at this point, we we got an apartment for a couple months in Ghent, Belgium. And my mom actually came to visit me. And she came alone, which was amazing because she never really traveled without my dad. That That was a big deal for her.
3: But in the I, early, early days. In
1: the early days. And I think at that point, Michael, you were back in Los Angeles. Yeah, that was right? when
3: I was in L.A. This is about early 90s. This early is Probably 90s. 91 or 92. something. No, maybe even 91.
1: Yeah. But I remember yeah. my mom basically visiting me and she was crying because she felt sorry <laughs> for me. And she's like, I want you to have nice things. No, because
3: the apartment, <laughs> there was nothing in the apartment. We, we basically like when we get an apartment, you we're usually not going to be there long. So we have like a mattress on the floor. We have like, we find a cardboard box and put a, a, put a, like a a cover over it. Cloth from India over it. Indian cloth over it to make it look like a table. And we use that, you know, it's like very basic, very utilitarian. So that's what she was responding to. Her house, by contrast, Is chock full of knickknacks, thimble collections. Doll collections. Doll collections. Things Uh, that make
1: her happy, which is fine. You know, that's that's what makes her happy. But I I like feeling free. (laughs) When I'm done with something, I don't mind putting it on the street. You know, one of the uh, cool things about um, Berlin and also um, in Belgium is people put beautiful furniture on the street, even a TV on the street, things they don't want anymore for other people to find. So we actually found some great stuff on the street as well to decorate our apartment. But, but mainly, you know, I'd say to my mom, I'm not interested in things. I'm interested in experiences. I'm interested in adventures. I'm interested in just enjoying the moment, the journey. I don't need to collect things or own things. You know, nothing is permanent in life. We, we fool ourselves. We, we set up our house, all this stuff, we gather all this material stuff and it, you know it's okay to enjoy it but not to be attached to it it you know some people it makes you feel safe it makes you feel like you have a place but in the world a but it's all it's false sense, sense of security really, yeah. anything can change at any moment you're going to have to you know get rid of this stuff one day you don't take it with you and then you get all your stuff and and for instance let's say you work at a job for years and years that that you really are not happy but you're like well one day when i retire i'll do what i want it's all about you know then and then it's time to retire and you get sick and you don't have the energy to travel anymore. So Michael and I, we kind of did it backwards. We're like, we're going to do what we love now and we're going to take risks. and We're going to have adventures. And maybe we won't make a lot of money along the way, but we're going to have a lot of great experiences. And I feel like one of the richest people in the world. But my you know, bank account didn't show it. And in, in the early days, we actually didn't even have a bank account. And we traveled with a cardboard box. We kept our money in and it was so freeing. <laughs> that was it was bank. so simple and uncomplicated. Yeah, I love that period.
3: Yeah. I th- I think the, the thing is also, well, our lifestyle is a little weirder than most people's because if you're a homesteader, which we kind of, we use that term, if you're in one place and you're not going anywhere, that's a little different. But for us, we were always able to move because of the job, because of, of touring and then later filmmaking. And when we would make a film, we would, to promote it, we would tour with the film in cinemas. That's what we've been doing for since 1990 and, uh, movies and since movies for the past 15 years, but their musics for 31 years. And so what we did was what we found is that we had so many friends around the world And literally, we we have a, you know, a, a, a database that we've kept since the early days so that we can remember everybody's numbers and all that stuff. And we have so many thousands of friends all over the world that whenever anything is needed, we just put a little shout out to our friends and we say, hey, we're looking for this. We're about to do this. Anybody have ideas? we have this cavalcade of of uh of abundance that comes our way to help us manifest. It's all about community. And when we it's really first amazing. started,
1: Shrini, though we didn't know anyone. We like knew one guy on the continent. <laughs> you know, when we landed in Amsterdam and way back in 1990.
3: But I but I think here's the thing also back to my mother. One of the things that I got from her is she really clearly never burn your bridges. Yeah. You know, she was like I mean, I can count on one hand after all this time, people that I really have a huge problem with, you know, that I have a real you know, negative issues with on one hand, after thirty one years of, of traveling the world and also my life up to that point. So so that that's one thing is whenever we go somewhere, also I was a boy scout and there's a thing like always leave a campsite in better condition <laughs> than when you arrived. <laughs> that's right. And I was a Girl Scout. Yeah. And so we, we always try to do that too. Like we're we're like the best guests you'll ever have in your life. You know, we, we, we know where to get out of the way. We, we observe how everything is in the room physically. We've had a lot of training, all this (laughs) stuff. So we, we, we really, we have a, I think because we have such a deep uh, bench of friends that we truly care about and care about us, that that's, that's abundance beyond belief. And that's prosperity in a terrifically stable way.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, Mm -hmm. and for sure though, going back to where we started you need to be practical. You know, you yeah. need to figure out how am I going to feed myself? How am I going to travel? How am I going to buy that train ticket? So you you have to educate yourself and learn about what you're doing, doing the best job you can, saving money where you can, looking for deals. Be a um, good planner. Like be a good
3: planner. a good planner.
1: You have to plan. You have to think. You dream. But you, but you do have to be practical. And I'm glad that, you know, I, I didn't graduate college but I went for a couple of years. I was like an undeclared major, but it was good to educate myself and, and learn about different things.
3: 18 years of college down the drain
1: of <laughs> 18 years of school down the drain. <laughs> no college, oh. <laughs> But um, definitely I think I learned so much more by being out in the world and interacting with people and having adventures. That's, I learned by doing and that's, been our whole lifestyle really you know the way we make films the way we make music the way we've learned anything in our lives it's been by doing so i also think with education kids need more experience than sitting in the classroom and memorizing things Mm
4: -hmm.
1: you know there needs to be more action Mm
2: mm-hmm yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that because I, you know, I, I started, I signed up for a masterclass and in my mind, I was like, what is the point of just consuming this content? So literally for each class I take, I do a project. So I took Ken Burns documentary filmmaking class and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to make a short documentary about the women in my family and how, you know, they're amazing cooks. And uh-huh. it was super fun. And, you know, I learned all this stuff that I had no idea about and it was super useful because I actually went out and applied it. And it's like, all these people are sitting around, you know, in the discussion, board discussing lessons. And I was like, what is the point of this? I took this class specifically so I could learn how to make a film. So I should go make the film. That's great. That's great. Don't you
1: learn by doing? And and it's great because, you know, you make a lot of mistakes. Like with filmmaking, we said, we're not going to spend the money to go to film school. We're just going to buy a camera. You know, Michael knows how to write. A lot of our friends are actors. We do music.
3: I was editing already.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. But let's learn by doing. And we know we're going to make mistakes, but we know each movie is going to get better. And it was a great way to learn because because you really mm. uh, jump ahead. Like each movie is a giant leap up, you know, not just a small leap because you learn by doing and you learn what mistakes you don't want to make again.
3: Yeah. You're really smart to the way that you handle that masterclass, the Ken Burns thing. That's really great because until you start doing stuff and making mistakes, and then fixing them, you know, you really don't, it doesn't burn in your mind, the lesson. And there was a nice uh, thing that we heard from from a monk we know, one of the yoga, on the yoga path we're on. He, they said, um, it was a story they were telling about IBM, I think. The early days of IBM, one of the developers there was having trouble with a particular thing, and he went to his boss saying, hey, look, it's just not working, I can't crack this problem. And the boss's advice was double your failure rate. He said, double your failure rate. And so, you know, do more experiments, double your failure rate. And as soon as he did that, he, he figured it out and cracked it. I thought that was a really nice way to look at it. It's it's If you make a mistake, it's not a, mis- it's not a failure. It's a total wonderful thing because you just learned, okay, that doesn't work. Let me see, try again, try again. Personally speaking, I find I have to do things usually three to five times because it's like tri- triangulation. Imagine firing at a target you know, for me, I'm like like if you're firing at a target, you fire, and I'm like way to the right, and I'm like, oh, okay, way well, yeah. out. So then I overcompensate. Usually, boom, the second attempt, I'm way to the left, and then the third one, sometimes, boom, right in the middle, or maybe five times to to finally get to where you no, know, that works. That's it. And then from that point on, something you know you'll find you'll find. I mean, if you when you have to make a doc again as as a filmmaker, you'll just immediately have like almost like a you'll like understanding a language. You'll be like, oh yeah, boom. So pretty neat. It's funny you say that because I, I,
2: uh, you know, I shot a trailer for, you know, my, my roommates, um, you know, speaking reel. And I remember we sat down and he was like, why the hell are you asking me all these questions that have nothing to do with my work? And like, trust me, there's a method to my madness. So I'm I'm an interviewer. You should trust that I know what I'm doing (laughs) here. Cause I I realized that, you know, I I was like, I don't need, you know, everything you're going to say. But the thing is, if we start out this way, you're going to naturally say what I want you to say and it's going to sound amazing because we're not forcing a structure onto this. And that was one of those things that even, you know, going through that Ken Burns class I learned was, you know, just record interviews. And then the other thing that, you know, I just did, I finished uh, Annie Leibovitz's masterclass and I've finished shooting a series of portraits of my roommates and I was like, okay, that was super fun. Um, But yeah, each one. And I think the thing that I love about this is that it forces you to be creative with no agenda, which is incredibly valuable because it can apply to other projects. But I, Robin, really appreciate the fact that you mentioned that you have to be practical because I think that one of the things that has come about, you know, uh, as a result of sort of this self-help new agey world that we live in with podcasts like mine um, and, you know, the people that even come here and all these books is this almost irrational, almost delusional optimism where the practicality isn't taken into consideration and people don't consider context when they hear advice from other people. So I I think that that's invaluable that you mentioned that.
1: Oh, yeah, good yeah, point. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And when, you know, we were, when we first went over to Europe, you know, you probably read our story. We sold everything we had. We bought one-way tickets. We had backpacks and guitars and knew one guy on the continent. And our dream was to travel and play music. We really didn't know what was going to happen or how we were going to do it. But we, we were so inspired. We're like, somehow we're going to find a way. We're going to see what unfolds, what comes into our path. Well, at a certain point, we were actually about to run out of money. And and Michael and I were like fighting every day. And he's like, well, let's go back to L.A. And I'm like, no, I came to Europe to travel and play music and make a career. I'm going to find a way to do it. Well, you know what I had to do? I had to teach myself how to book a tour. I'd never done it before. <laughs> and I literally, I, you know, I got a music magazine. This is in Holland. And I saw saw these clubs and I, I just... I've done
3: it a little with my band. So I gave you a couple of tips like well, how to make a package and this kind of
1: thing. Yeah, that's true. But but and this was before, you know, emails and internet really. I had to pick up the phone and call all these clubs, spend eight hours a day calling, calling, calling. Hello, we're Bright Blue Gorilla from Los Angeles. We want to play your club. You know, do you speak English? <laughs> and uh, I learned a few words of Dutch to like for my intro but anyway, I ended up calling and calling and calling and sending out all these cassette tapes. We were doing cassette tapes at the time. And then I had to do follow up calls. And sometimes it took like 10 phone calls or the person is only in on Tuesdays at noon. You know, it was, it was hard. But I finally got through and that was like summertime. And then by fall... We had fifty shows yeah, booked.
3: Good shows. Too. Good shows. Yeah, that was the beginning, right? Yeah. And, and it, because and it was because working, she, because I was like, she got wow. because she got fifty shows. This shows you how one thing leads to another. That's oh, another yeah. principle. One thing leads to another. So if you want to go, if you want to go somewhere really far, start going now in that direction, and one thing will lead to another. So Robin booked fifty shows, and in Holland, whenever they have a, a concert tour, it's always listed in a, a certain magazine there. And and an agent, a booking agent, saw this listing of fifty shows of us and called us and said, "Hi, who who is your agent? Because I've never heard of you guys." And we said, "We're our agent." And then they said, "Not anymore." And That's so, how we got our first booking yeah, so agent. They picked us up as a, and, and they've been we're our agent for like twenty years or something. Long
1: yeah, long. yeah.
2: I you know I, I think that you know this is such a uh, reinforcement of that whole Seth Godin lesson of stop waiting to be picked. Um, and, and you know pick yourself. And I think the other sort of insight for me is that, you know, you are basically demonstrating this idea of the fact that this is not the field of dreams. It's not if you build it, they will come like you have to tell people about what you're doing.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Right. And that I like what you just said. You know, one of the reasons we left Los Angeles in the first place was we said, we're not going to wait around here to be discovered to, by a record company to get permission to do what we love. And in L.A., you know, especially at that time, I'm sure it's the same, the artists would play the clubs for free. You had to bring in the audience. And you were hoping somebody from a record company would be in the audience who would discover you to give you permission. You know, you're working a full-time job, doing your music part-time. And that's when we said, you know what? We're quitting our jobs. We're selling everything we have. And we're going to go create a career. And it's going to happen. We're going to put ourselves out in the world.
3: I I think another principle that I think you... You, If you really want to succeed in something that's new or that's not obviously, there's not an obvious pathway to it, uh, you need to get used to discomfort. You need to get used to discomfort. You need to get used to not being uh, comfortable in luxurious wise, luxury wise. You need to be willing. Now, I don't want to say suffer, but you need to be willing to. Bear the discomfort of like not knowing for sure about something or not having things exactly as you would like it. It's actually really good for your all laid personality, out for you, right? Yeah, if you because we a lot of the times now we've toured thirty-one years, and we've had a really good career all over the world, and we have like I said, friends everywhere. But there were many times when we weren't sure where we were going to like. The, we we did a gig, and whenever you do a show, you can stay usually stay with the promoters or the people that are doing it or the or the students that are putting on the concert. So
1: once in a while, they give you a hotel, but most of the time, yeah, most of the time it's that. So
3: we're staying with different people every night. And, you know, people are different. If Some people are clean. Some people are not clean. <laughs> right. You know, and, and so the, a lot of times, like there's no heat or there's no. Hot water. No hot water, this or that. So there, there was a lot of, uh, in yoga philosophy, it's called tatiksha. It's like having even mindedness. When things are, are painful, you don't, you, you just like, I can get through this. And when things are really beautiful and really joyous, you like enjoy it, but you don't go too crazy. You're like, oh, I'm so excited. You're like, you're like, just enjoy. So it's even minded. So we got a lot of chance to practice that. For those that are not yoga practitioners, it's basically like, just get used to discomfort. If you're on the right path and you, you, and you, you see that it's leading you where you want to go, or at least in that direction, things will improve. It's worth all the ups and willing. downs. You have to be yeah. willing to, to, to go through that.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of ups and downs and surprises yeah. and everything is not laid out for you where, you know, you have your struggles mm-hmm. when you work for somebody else too, but you know, you're going to get your paycheck every week. You know, your days laid out for you. You know what to expect sometimes. But think
3: about it for a second. Honestly, if you've ever had a job, which I know we've all had jobs that we didn't particularly like. The, the, if you if you have that for a couple of years, you're gonna see a lot of the times you're not really enjoying it. It's like you're suffering in a way to use that word. you're you're not digging the job, but then you get the paycheck and oh good, okay, at least I got you know, but, but with our own dreams, like our own dream job, we get we sometimes expect it to be like,
5: oh perfect, right?
3: Angelic all the time and it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, it's no better yeah. or worse than getting a job with somebody you don't like. There's 33% of the time, it's horrible. 33% of the time, it's amazingly (laughs) great. And the other 33%, it's kind of somewhere in between. Isn't it?
2: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember very distinctly my old mentor, Greg said, okay, he said for every intention you have, make a counterintention. Cause he said, you know, no matter what you get, even if it's something you want more than anything in the world, something about it is going to suck. He said, you want a TV show? Great. Now you're so famous that you can't even go out to dinner at a restaurant without people bothering you. And he said, nobody ever
3: sees that side of this. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And yeah. if you know that you got to know that. And if you know that you, you can go, okay, well, this is fine. That's normal. I'm on the road, so that means, oh, so now I'm going to have, you know, some rough nights of sleeping because I can't sleep very well when when I'm moving this fast around the world. But then you catch up and you feel good again and you keep going. Yeah, it's, I know what you're getting into. Know what you're getting into and be patient. Just take it, you know, back to yoga for a second. If you have some kind, it doesn't have to be yoga meditation, but some kind of inward looking practice, which is regular, that's a really important word. It needs to be a regular, like you do it a couple of times a day every day and you don't miss it also couple that with some kind of physical energy work where you're keeping your physical form more or less in harmony if you do those two things you got to do those two things in some form if you want to go long otherwise you you something will happen and you'll you'll burn out or there'll be a big problem,
1: right? Well, because those kind of practices awaken yep. your intuition, which really keeps you on the path you need to keep on no matter what your life choices are. That's the thing. A
3: lot of people in the mm-hmm. pandemic are starting to do that sort of thing, which is really encouraging. You know, they were more meditation and this and that. That's very good. A lot of inward looking now.
2: So that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's funny because we, you know, we talk about attention. Uh, we we have a new course on managing your attention and one of the modules is about meditation and you when people say, Oh, I don't have the time. And I, it, it's something I just realized after developing a meditation practice, I said, you know, for 10 minutes of meditation, you're going to get an hour of focus in return. So it's actually not taking time. It's giving you time. Yeah. It's sharpening it the axe. Exactly.
1: The that, that's such a good point. And Michael and I actually, we talk about that all the time because You know, maybe it would take you eight hours to accomplish something. But if you meditate, like Michael said, sharpening the axe, you're in tune, you're going to be guided to making the right phone calls, to writing the right messages, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And you could probably accomplish that in four hours of work instead of eight.
3: Yeah. And we really, sometimes it's hilariously obvious, (laughs) you know, when you're like, there's some big problem or something that you just can't figure out. And you've been working on it working on it and working on it. And then you say, okay, I'm just dropping it. You, you go in, in, you interiorize, you get into the, you try to attune with the spirit that's projecting this whole dream world thing. And you, you finally, you go in, you go in deep. Hopefully you feel some bliss. And then you come out and instantly call Scott Smith. It's like, oh yeah, that guy with the thing. That's da-da-da. happened so and many then you, times. And you call him and he goes, hey, I was just thinking about you guys. Da-da-da-da-da. And then, boom, he's got the solution, you know. I I can't tell you how many thousands of times that stuff has happened. It's hilarious. There's never been a
0: faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify.
2: yeah, you know, and the fact that you've made this work for thirty-one years. There's in my mind so many lessons and just that alone. Um uh, yep. so how do you meet and, and how what is it we can learn from the fact that somehow you've sustained this for thirty one years?
3: We met in a bar. <laughs> That's that it was a bar, actually. Amazing. Well, so but, now you tell the story. And
1: we don't even drink.
3: <laughs> no, we don't. No, Go but
1: ahead. no, it was actually a music club. Yeah,
3: but it was a bar. Which was a the bar the coconut teaser. The
1: coconut teaser on Sunset and Laurel Canyon. And downstairs is where da- they put
3: the hippies. <laughs> yeah. The 8121, the
1: 8121 was the singer-songwriter club downstairs. And so Michael and I were both performing that night. And we were both playing solo. And I was uh, playing some songs. Michael saw my set. And then he was setting up for his set. And I saw a couple of his songs. And at the time, I was looking for a guitar player and somebody to co-write some songs with. But I had to leave early. I couldn't meet him that night, but I really wanted to meet him. So I took one of my cards at the time I was a massage therapist. That was one of the jobs I had in L.A. And I wrote a note on the back saying, hey, want to get together and write some songs? Here's my phone number. And then it took, Two weeks weeks later for him to call me.
3: I was married at the time. And so I and I had this like what massage card. What's this? You know, she was a real massage therapist. It wasn't like that kind of massage.
1: That's right. And he said, my wife and I live in Hollywood. And you sure I'd like to get together and write some songs. I was like, darn, he's married. (laughs) Because I also was definitely attracted to him. But he called me and we got together and we wrote a love Wr-
3: song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when you, when you write a love song, you fall in love. Right. right?
1: But it, but it was, it was good that. But we
3: were friends. That was the thing is because I was married and I, and, and I did have some, you know, some small amount of, of uh, decency. I, I said, I, you know, I just want to be friends. We're just going to be friends.
1: Which was the greatest thing because even so, for a
3: year we were friends. Yeah,
1: we were friends. That
3: really—that's. I think that's why we lasted 31 years. One of the main reasons
1: that gave us a great foundation. But I was also—I was really devastated because I knew that this was my soulmate, and I knew we were meant to be together. But I thought, well, we met at the wrong time in our lives, and we won't be together. So I was—I was also really sad. And but like Michael said, we got to be friends. We got to know each other. And then it was really a surprise that we ended up getting together.
3: Yeah. It, you know, the, the marriage that I was in was never good and it was just going from bad to worse. So there was a significant point where I said, I can't do this. And so uh, I remember, you know, I, I, I was at, th- at therapy. My wife, ex-wife, had gone to back to New Mexico where we were planning to move. And I was at the same therapist office that, that we had gone to as a husband wife. And the therapist was like saying, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I was like, well, I can't do what I want to do. I have responsibilities. She said, wait, whose life is it anyway? And that was like, oh, yeah, that's true. And so she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to stay here and I want to be with Robin. And she said, do it, you know. So it was like, it was really interesting. And
1: well, so, I like what she said. If you could
3: push a magic button and everything would just be like you want, what would it look like? And So I put the scenario out there and she said, push the button. So I called, um, there was kind of a funny, dramatic thing that on the way to, to, to telling Robin, I, I called, I used the, the therapist's phone to call Robin. I said, can I use your phone? And I called Robin at work and I said, hi, Robin. Uh, I just wanted to tell you, I'm getting a divorce. We're going to be together. I'll see you later. And I hung up and then, um, I was <laughs>
1: freaking out. I was like, what? I really and, didn't think that was going to happen. And, then, of course, I was afraid that I was just going to be the transition woman. You know, maybe it's not good to get involved with somebody. 31 that's year transition. Divorce. So 31 year transition. So, so
3: so anyway, I hung up the phone and I, and I leave the psychiatrist, the, the counselor's office. And uh, I'm driving on on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And and I've got Bruce Springsteen playing in the radio. And it's a beautiful day. And I've got this gold wedding ring on my finger. And I never liked having a wedding ring on. It always felt like a like a handcuff or something i i for this marriage i've never worn a wedding ring so that that one i never liked it And the this i was at the traffic light and the 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 sun caught the the gold ring and it shined back in my eyes and i looked at that thing and across the street was a homeless guy going through the trash and i was at the red light and so i pulled off that gold ring and i threw it towards the guy and it rolled towards the guy and i said hey pick it up. And he looked down at the gold ring and I said, pick it up. It's yours. (laughs) (laughs) And then I drove off. And so somewhere a a homeless guy hopefully cashed in the gold ring and had a meal.
1: Right. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's been an amazing relationship. We, we both changed and grown so much and had so many adventures together. In the early days, we did fight a lot though, because we're both leaders. We're both really strong people yeah. and we had to learn how to work together. I mean, before we got together as a couple during our first rehearsal, actually, we <laughs> had a fight.
3: Yeah. And I said, I, I don't think we could work together.
1: That's what Michael said. Cause I was telling him how I wanted the guitar played, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we got tools and we both had done therapy and, that really helped that because helped we learned lot, how to communicate yeah. we one of our rules was never name call yeah. let's talk about the issue let's keep the respect and never brush anything under the rug we especially in the early days we'd take yeah. two hours just to talk or about longer, something you know to work out a problem yeah. we work through everything we didn't leave anything undone yeah
3: that was good
1: kept communication open and we
3: were met always met not really in the first year but it was it took you a little while to start getting into meditating but then then, you know, we've meditated together ever since. And we, we meditate quite a bit. We're, we belong to Self-Realization Fellowship, which is Yogananda's path. And, and he really emphasizes meditation, daily meditation, as much as you can handle in your time of your day, as much as your schedule will handle. And so we meditate an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and we never miss it. And then we do like uh, another half an hour of energy work, which is kind of like Qigong. Um, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening. So that's real regular. But that, particularly, I tell you, that works out so many problems, relationship problems, without ever a word being said.
1: Keeps us if, in harmony. As soon
3: as you go inside and you, you know, you're you're sensitive and you're really plugging in, you're really aware of maybe something you did or said that wasn't good, and and you immediately want to fix it. Also, you know, the beautiful thing about any kind of decent spiritual path, any kind of real, real uh, spiritual path that works is there's an element of forgiveness in it. And with any person, any human being alive on this planet is going to be a lot of need for forgiveness because this is one giant trap, (laughs) you know, of stupid things you can get involved in here. So that's, that's what saved us too, is that, that part of, part of that. Yeah. And we're best
1: friends. I mean, that's the thing we, we were, Best friends when we met, and we're still best friends. And it only gets better the more w- we get to know each other. You, after thirty-one years, you keep learning new things.
3: And as we get older, you know, we're <laughs> looking forward to drinking more soup together, and <laughs> and uh, perhaps picking out a walker when the time is right. <laughs> <laughs> no walkers. No, so no walkers. We've we'll talked to so.
2: We've talked about it from the standpoint of your relationship. Let's talk about it from the standpoint of your work, because this is something I've asked probably every musician I have talked to uh, on this show. Uh, You know, I mean, I think we're we're probably close enough in age that you probably remember who Crisscross and the Spin Doctors were. Uh, And the thing that I've always wondered is, why do you have musicians who become like the Spin Doctors? And then how do you have Bono who transcends four decades and still remains relevant in culture? What's the
3: difference? Oh, gosh, I had, that that's a tricky one. I think basically you it, it could be partially. Also, I think of David Bowie when you mentioned that because he kept reinventing himself and he kept coming out different ways and he was he really stayed relevant.
1: Bono's but, actually really got a spiritual side. To yeah, him, that too. doesn't he? Yeah, very yeah.
3: authentic. I think I uh, that's probably the word authentic. I think that's also Springsteen has managed to to stick it out and be you know you know more or less true true to himself in a way and also sort of reinvent himself over the years. But it's I think it's probably authenticity. And I would say that with most people, there you know, in the business side of things, I'm sure there's an element of marketing and all that that also makes somebody have longevity and whether or not they've got backing. But in in a more visceral sense, I would say it's authenticity. Is that they're not afraid to experiment, they're not afraid to change and they're not uh and they're they're sincere in what they're expressing. So that that's that's probably mm. it. I would imagine. Yeah. Of course the Spice Girls, you know, I always loved them. I thought they would last forever. <laughs> I was really disappointed when yeah, they, they broke they up. They
2: had a pretty they had a pretty good run. They were know. authentic. Uh, especially Sporty Spice. Yeah, I mean I li- <laughs> Yeah, some people hey, probably listen to what a what lot we're lot talking about when they I really kind of disappeared. Yeah. What do you say? Well, I mean, I listen to Hanson when I snowboard. Umbop is one of my snowboarding songs. So,
4: (laughs) you know. Um,
2: One thing that I wonder you guys have been all over the world, and I I wonder across cultures uh, what is seen as the perception uh, when it comes to the value of creativity? uh, in, in different cultures and, you know, what you've learned from each one, which I, I realized probably to do all of them would take another interview. Uh, but I'm curious. And I I think part of what intrigues me about this and the reason I asked this is, you know, we were talking earlier before we actually hit record about India and how here's a country that produces insane amounts of art and beautiful art, music, movies. I mean, their movies are are questionable when it comes to the quality, but that's (laughs) uh, my opinion. Not everybody's, um, but the funny thing is it's also a culture that discourages people from becoming artists, which is so weird to me. So I, I wonder when you've looked at all these different cultures, um, how is the value of creativity perceived across these different cultures?
1: Well, I have found, especially around Europe, that there seems to be more support for the arts. You know, there's more I mean, that's starting to change now too. Things are mm. getting more materialistic. More yeah. Artistic budgets are being cut. But a lot of people we met along the way, they got support from their government. There were a lot of programs. And when they were out of a job, you know, there was money for them.
3: Also, just the, and the, the cost
1: of living was cheaper
5: and the, arts are the respect paid, for the arts. It's
3: not just government funding. It's that also like in Holland, for example, there was a thriving club scene there where you could perform. And so it's like it wasn't government funding. It was just basically that people would go to hear you saying every weekend or every, you know, four days a week.
1: Yeah. So you could make
3: make a good, you could make four or five hundred bucks doing a show.
1: And in the early days, there were all these, uh, they're called youth clubs. Even the smallest town had one. And everybody would go there every Friday night, no matter who was playing. They trusted the booking agent to bring quality. So our name didn't have to be known for them to hire us.
3: Yeah, that was, that was one of the things that really got us off on the right foot is we spent the first few years really focusing on Holland. We also went to Italy and to Germany, and some other places, but Holland was our main place where we performed. And What's because so- of the culture they had, that club culture, the yeah. pub, pub culture, really. Yeah, that's but I'll true. But i tell you, we, we, it was smoky. Back in those <laughs> days, in the early 90s, everybody smoked cigarettes and or cigars or whatever and it was like wow you walk in there and it's like a fog machine and so we we your we, eyes would be burning yeah, that, that at that the was, end of the night that was the, the tricky part in the early days that's not like that anymore
1: but yeah, that wasn't fun but but, but, but culturally, the, clubs, yeah. the clubs though did get some government money because see that's oh, yeah, changed that's it's yeah it changed did. where then then they started asking in the later years well how many people can you draw It started yeah, to become yeah. more like la like
3: la yeah
1: but even in you know in mm. Germany and Berlin there's a big um, film fund mm. and it you know it takes a lot of work it's not necessarily easy to get the money but it's there it's there yeah and it it even you know funds movies that aren't necessarily commercial yeah, that's the but good they're part. artistic
3: yeah, yeah. I, right? I think the difference between America that I've observed and the rest of the world is here if you're famous it's really great there they, that's like cap that's like a uh, value uh, if you're if you're not if you're not famous and you're and you're uh, new, well, they're like, well, you know, yeah, you haven't had your break yet. You go for it, kid. But if you've been doing it for a while and you're unknown in America, it's kind of like, well, why aren't you famous? What's wrong with you? Go get a real job. Go get a real job. So uh, the thing is, I think with Americans, though, I think as a culture, it's always been very utilitarian. Like, for example, artists here that were really artisans. The people that were in demand were the ones that made the wagon wheels, you know, because it was they needed it. It's like I need wagon wheels. So if you're an art, if you're an artisan and you can make a round wheel that works, then you can get work. If you're just decorating the thing, well, that's totally not necessary. We are very utilitarian here. So maybe that's part of it with with America, because
1: even a lot of the architecture in Europe is just so beautiful, and the way they light things at yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, it's more.
3: It's not just more, strictly for for use only. It's like some beauty in it. But of course, American architecture. You know, we've got some some that there too. But I don't know. Is it maybe? Yeah. Maybe there is something to that.
1: I don't just seem like more more respect for the arts, and it seemed like because we are artists, so many people around the world in different countries were willing to take us in.
3: Yeah, that was great.
1: You know, so there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I'm so glad you guys brought up the whole idea of fame because, um, you know, you have artistic careers that predate social media and the internet (laughs) <laughs> and I don't remember who it was somebody recently was on the podcast and said, you know, you can become famous overnight because of social media. That doesn't mean you'll be successful overnight. And I'm meaning to write about that. But um, one of the things I wonder is, is what you've seen as sort of the downsides, because I feel like what has happened in, in my mind and, you know, they're both pros and cons. I don't think I'd have the career I do if the Internet hadn't made the tools possible. But there's sort of this shift to, you know, an excessive focus on metrics and not nearly enough on mastery um, where you know, people start to confuse attention and accomplishment. And I wonder having sort of been, you know, uh, in the arts for so long in in a way that predates social media, what you've seen as trends in this, uh, both that are good and bad.
1: Yeah, it seems like just because something gets a lot of hits doesn't mean the quality is there. I, I think that can be missing a lot. And why do things go viral they don't always go viral for the right reason no
3: that, I, there's that's, too
1: much and there's too much of everything now i mean that's a big problem
3: the, the to me the obvious for us personally uh in our business, the downsides are everybody in the world is making a music now. everybody in the world is making movies now. everybody in the world is blah blah blah. So it's like, that's the thing. It's nice that people have a, a movie studio in their pocket with their iPhone 12 for $1,200, whatever it is. And, you know, they can make a, they can record a, they can make a feature film with it. They can da, da, da. And, but the downside is that everybody's doing that. So the price point on stuff is like, I mean, I just looked uh, at one of our songs just a couple of weeks ago. I glanced at some, what was it? A Spotify thing. So one of our things had like 6,000 downloads And we got like 14 cents for it. (laughs) And it's like, if I'd sold 6,000 records, you know, I would have $6,000, you know, even at a terrible rate, you know, of, of royalty rate. So it's, it's really, that's too bad. And one of the things I hope they address is the fact that there's this sort of pyramid vacuum cleaner sucking thing that's going up to about, I don't know what, 500 people in the whole world or less. The people that own the Amazons, the Googles, the this, the that, that, that that license the music. Somebody owns Spotify and it's one of those, you know, hundred hundred billionaires or whatever. And so they're able to leverage all the little musicians to sell their stuff for nothing, for pennies on the dollar or, or actually pay the musicians pennies on the dollar and or not even pennies, pieces of pennies. And that yet they are making a lot of money. So I hope there's some kind of evening out of that where it's, <sighs> I, don't know. I don't know if that eventually I'm sure that will come. I'm talking about hundreds of years. It will come to be, to mm. be more yeah. worked out. But
1: pe- people, people yeah. don't, I mean, it's nice to have access to stuff and you can discover new people you would have never discovered. And to meet people around the world on the internet. And I mean, there's great stuff that connect us all. Right. But I also think people become spoiled. There's too much of everything. Not as much appreciation. Mm. You can throw away things too easily. It's it's really it's really quite a mix, yeah, isn't for, it?
3: We focus mostly yeah. on the in the in person, you know, live events, and also we make movies. So that's a virtual thing we're doing, which requires you know, a few hundred people being together for a few months to make this movie, and then we take it on the road and tour with it. So we've always been more about the experience, the live experience person to person. Yeah. And of course, with the pandemic that that went away. And so um, what 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 we're uh, that is still fairly useful to people once the pandemic is over, which is it is coming that we're going back to not normal, but post pandemic. Uh There's people, nothing like a
1: live event. A live event,
3: an experience. Right. You can't you still can't totally replace an ex- actual experience where you're in in the room with other people doing something, having an experience.
1: I think so that'll that always be special. That's always good. Right?
3: Fortunately, that's that's what we've focused on.
2: Mm. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love this. I mean, I think you guys are are speaking my language because I mean even William Dershowitz, who wrote a book called The Death of the Artist, was here, he said, you know, what most people don't realize is that You know, yes, you know, anybody can, you know, start something, build something. And he said, but the key word there is anybody. And he said, if you look at sort of the tech platforms like Google, YouTube, Spotify, the artists that basically build these platforms get nothing in comparison to what the companies do.
3: Mm,
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, with with, somebody's got
2: to
3: look into that. Right. Some of our
1: streaming movie platforms, I think we get six cents an hour. I mean,
3: it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. six you know? cents an hour—that's what they pay when somebody watches our movie on Amazon Prime. Six cents an hour.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. Wow. So, lot the live events or how how you can make a living as an artist.
3: I just think it would be great if some mm. back in the old days, back in the seventies, when there were like uh, governmental board groups that were looking at how, like, why did the airlines make this much money or what? why are they charging this much fee? It was, uh, what do they call that? You know, it was- Regulation? Regulated, yeah. Back then, in the 70s, they would probably have a commission to say, wait a minute, how, how much is Amazon making or how much is Spotify making on the people and how much are they paying the artists? You know, like for example, in Holland and mm-hmm. the Netherlands, that was the way that they, in the early 90s, that was more the way their government worked. They would say- to the landlord, okay, landlord, you say that you want to raise your rent to $1,000 instead of 500 So why? Show us your costs. What are you doing that suddenly is worth twice, you know, that you can get that money? Why do you need 1000 instead of 5 They would have to demonstrate it to the government before they could raise their rent. And if they, and the government was pretty mm-hmm. fair about it. If they said, yeah, okay, your costs have gone up 30%, so you can raise it, you can raise it 40% to make a little more money. But they wouldn't just let them like American style, like, you know, hi, Mr. Person that's been renting my apartment for $1,000 a month. We've decided you're, as of next year, your rent's going to be $3,000. <laughs> right. We'd love to have you as a tenant, but if you can't afford it, we understand and we're happy to help you move on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. Wow. Wow. Um, Well, this has
2: been really, really lovely and insightful and thought-provoking. I love talking to you guys because it's just sort of uh, not a linear conversation at all, which makes sense considering what you do. Uh, (laughs) I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh...
3: Because we're so young and cute, no, that doesn't work anymore. Um, golly, I, I think for us, it's just that I, like I said, we're just doing what we do. You know, we're being true to ourselves, and even the songs that we write. its just it's because we feel like writing a song like that. If we make a movie, it's like, "Oh, wouldn't it be fun to do a movie like this? Oh, that's funny, Let's do that." So it's stuff that we feel is fun or worthwhile in some way, just personally. And so we do that. And nobody's telling us, oh, you can't do that. It's not marketable. And so we, you know, we just do what we think is fun or nice. And then people decide if they like it or not. And fortunately, enough people know us where they say, oh, it's the gorillas. That's their weird gorilla stuff. I <laughs> their weird gorilla <laughs>
1: brand. Yeah, I think it's not having to fit into a box. Yeah. Not, you know, doing what people expect you to do. What, what does your heart say? you know, follow your heart. It's, it's such a cliche, but what inspires you? And I think, are you serving others in some way? Are your choices making you a better person and giving something to others? Not, you know, not to be too self-centered.
3: Um, also for us, it's like, you know, uh, it's important that what we're doing is coming from the right place. For example, if, if, you're, if your driving force is you want to be famous, you want to be loved, you want to be known, you want power, I want people to know my name, I want to be able to get into any, any place I want to go because I'm famous, well, that, there's, there's something else behind that as well. What are you actually looking for? In a way, what you're looking for is omnipresence. That's what you're really looking for, which is the natural, the, according to yoga philosophy, again, that's the natural state of the soul is omnipresence. And so you're, you're basically seeking what your, what your spiritual path would guide you to, but you're seeking it through worldly things, which is always bittersweet and it never quite works out. If you haven't noticed, there's two sides to the coin here on the earth, there's the dark and the light. And so, you know, you're going to, you're going to have some of the things that you think you want and a lot of stuff you'd never wanted that came with it. That's the earthly way. But if you if you find a spiritual correlation for any desire you're having and you look that way towards the, the source, you're going to find actually the fulfillment there. And so what I'm saying is if you clean up your desires a little bit, you make them a little more clean. Like, you know, rather by clean, I mean not enmeshing you in a bunch of stuff you didn't intend to get into, but more pure. There's a funny saying that the yogis have that, That that when you when a a yogi, a true yogi who's attuned, you know, with the universal source does an act, it's like writing in water. You know, that that it it goes away. It's like it it doesn't have any an adhering properties, it doesn't have any entangling properties. They do the action, but it was pure, their motive was pure, and so it, it like like writing in water with your finger, it goes, it's there and then gone. And so you're, you're not entangled by it, enmeshed by it. That's one thing we always try to, to really think, why do we want this? What are we after here? To be honest with yourself, yeah, right? It, yeah. What's and when, driving yeah, you? Because yeah, and... a lot of times we realize, oh, you know, that's what we're looking for. We're not actually, what we're looking for is not that thing. It, was this, it's, it seems like that thing, but it's not. So again, it's basically introspection, self-analysis, introspection.
1: Yeah, and coming from a place of joy. And is it going to bring joy to others?
3: Yeah, joy is a nice thing. I don't think you can go wrong with stuff that's genuinely joyful, or that brings some kind of joy or that kind of higher feeling to people. Anything that does that is fine.
1: And doing our best to uplift others—you know—that's the kind of art we want to create and the kind of lives we want to live to uplift others. One
3: last thing I want got to say about it: being an artist, though, it's also an important job of the artist to help people emote. So you might be presenting a dark, tragic tale that helps people get in touch with that and let them emote, let them let it come out, let them feel. Because a lot of times, a lot of people are just so stuffed down or so shut down as humans. The artists, a great purpose of artists is to help open that stuff up. So it, it doesn't have to be a happy, happy, happy thing you're doing. It could be a tragic, uh, you know, dramatic tale you're telling or singing about. But the important thing is that it's genuine and that it will help open up a, a genuine emotion in someone.
1: Back to authenticity. <laughs>
3: yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you guys enough
2: for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and insights with listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to?
3: BrightBlueGorilla.com.
1: That's right. <laughs> Operators are standing by. <laughs> yeah, actually, our, our website is great. <laughs> BrightBlueGorilla.com. And you can email us from the website, and we will write you back personally.
3: Yeah, we will. There's no middleman.